Jacob's Wells Media presents Strange Tales from Humble Life by John Ashworth. Another case was a young woman I found weeping on my doorstep. On asking the cause of her sorrow, she put a letter into my hand from the chaplain of the Manchester City Jail. The chaplain wrote me to say that Jane Cheatham, the bearer, had served three months in prison, was very penitent, and he thought might probably become a reformed character. She was truly a friendless creature. I spent several shillings in buying clothes to make her look decent, and got her work in the woolen mill of John Ashworth and Sons. She attended all the meetings of the destitute, and promised fair. Jane had prayed while in prison, and she prayed for several weeks after she came out. According to her confession, she was getting the mastery of her besetting sin, drink. But she gave up praying, forged the name of one of my friends for a new shawl, sold it the same day for five shillings, spent it all in whiskey, then robbed a neighbor of a few shillings, and now Jane is serving four years in prison. Another case was that of a young woman named Mary, who came to implore my help to save her from a life of sin. With the kind cooperation of Miss Eleanor Ormerod, a lady who had labored hard to benefit this class, a place of service was got for her. Mrs. Birchill, the lady at whose house she went to reside, knew she was a fallen one, and was anxious to help in reclaiming her. For several weeks all went well, but she left her place, forged my name for seventeen shillings for a dress piece, and got it made on credit. The same night she turned out in her new dress, she committed a savage assault on another female, pawned her dress, and was taken to prison for the assault. On visiting the jail on Sunday morning to read and converse with the prisoners, to my astonishment I found Mary amongst them and it was then I learned from one of her companions, also in prison, that my name had been forged. I requested Mary to give me the pawn ticket to lessen my loss, but she refused, observing, I shall want some money when I come out. The next case was that of a clean-looking woman with a child that I had seen several times at the chapel and who seemed very devout. She called to ask for the loan of thirteen shillings to get her mangle or clothes wringer repaired, stating that a neighbor woman had turned the mangle too far and had broken the crank, and a mechanic had offered to repair it for that sum, saying also that it would be a great kindness, as she was a poor widow. Where do you reside? at number 70 Red Cross Street, and I shall be very glad if you will call soon, as I want to keep my customers, was the reply. Well, I will call and see your mangle, and have it repaired, perhaps, for less than thirteen shillings. I had a wild goose chase, for there was no number 70, or any broken mangle in Red Cross Street, and had it not been for another of my new friends, a little brown-faced dirty person, I should have lost all trace 
of the mangle woman. On asking the brown face where she resided, at Turner's, Church Lane, was her answer. Is there a little clean-looking woman lodging in Turner's house who keeps a broken mangle? She burst out laughing and asked if she had been to see me. I told her all about the matter, when she informed me that this same woman had been begging for this broken mangle for about seven years, that she had met with her in Halifax, Bradford, Burnley, Blackburn, and many other towns, always telling the same story, and finished by saying that she makes the most money of any of the tramps by her mangle tale. The next was a wretched case of extreme destitution. She cost me many shillings to clothe and lodge her. Mr. R. Bottomley kindly consented to take her into his mill and teach her cop-reeling. For some weeks she worked well, got better clothes, began to look clean, and attended all the meetings at the chapel. We all thought Mary Ann's a hopeful case, but she plundered two of her female friends of their best clothing, which I had to replace, then ran away, and I have never seen her since. The subject of the next case was called Will. He made the loudest profession of any of the lot, got his living by selling pins and needles, persuaded us he was making money, became a man of great importance amongst us, borrowed as much as he possibly could from the destitute friends, and away he went. None of us knew where. The last case I shall mention was that of a tall man with a wife and three children. I have not often seen a more miserable group than this family presented the first time I saw them in the chapel. After the sermon, the man wished to see me. He then gave a dreadful description of the sufferings he and his wife and children had gone through in consequence of his not being able to get employment. I saw the family safely housed for the night, got the man work as a labourer, and very soon he seemed likely to improve his circumstances. The whole family came regularly to all the services, and both husband and wife professed to become changed characters. What distressed them the most was not being able to read the Bible or kneel down to pray together in a wicked lodging-house, and the fear that their children might hear bad language. This was a source of continual sorrow. They wanted to prepare for heaven and wished to train their family in the way they should go. Seeing that for several months the man kept steadily at work, and had not drunk his wages, I concluded there was some hope, bought him about two pounds worth of furniture, and saw him settled in a small cottage. He then wished that a weekly prayer meeting might be held in his house. My scripture reader and several others of the congregation promising to attend, a meeting was begun. But just at this time a great misfortune befell him. While at work, he was suddenly doubled up from a pain in his back and was with difficulty got home. For several weeks he kept his bed, and great sympathy was manifested by all that went to see him. 
The doctor declared he would never again be able to follow his work as a striker for the Smiths. On consulting about the best mode of making some provision for the poor man and his family, it was ultimately decided that a donkey and cart should be purchased in order that he might begin trading in scrap iron, a business he professed to understand. For several days, Thomas, almost double with the spinal complaint and leaning on crutches, went about looking for a donkey and cart. At length one was found and purchased for four pounds fifteen shillings, myself being bound as surety for payment of the money by instalments. It was astonishing to see how soon the man's back became straight after he had got possession of this extra property, but I was soon after more astonished at hearing he had sold both donkey and cart while on a drunken spree. The news of Thomas's wickedness was soon known at the destitute and caused much sorrow. The prayer-meeting at his house was broken up, and all became a wreck. A few days after, the scripture-reader went to visit Thomas, and requested he would give up to me part of the money he had received for the property, as I was bound to pay it. All the answer he received was, "'If Mr. Ashworth says a word to me about the money, I will run a knife through him.' Soon after I met him in the street. He held down his head and tried to avoid me, but I quietly laid my hand on his shoulder and expressed my deep grief at his wicked conduct, informing him that I knew he had threatened my life if I dared to mention the money, and concluded by quoting the passage of Scripture which says, He that rewardeth evil for good... Evil shall never depart from his house. Thomas soon sold all he possessed, left the town, and is now a wanderer, no doubt practising his deception in other places. I expect the verdict of many, after reading the above case, will be, served him right, but still... Much as I had been imposed upon, I did not give up in despair. I must confess I felt deeply grieved to find such a number of the incorrigibly wicked, for I met many, very many more than I have described. My faith and patience were very severely tested, but I had counted the cost, and was daily preparing for a continued conflict. My blessed master healed ten men of the leprosy, but only one returned to thank him. Yet he went on healing all that came. He did not give up doing good because his goodness was abused, and as I had voluntarily undertaken to labor for the good of the most degraded part of the community, how could I expect any better results? The tramping part of our population for some time gave me great trouble. Hundreds of them attended our services, and many have returned to their homes, and are now leading better lives. But our great success has been amongst the resident poor of the town. Here the Lord has wonderfully blessed our labors. 
But about this time, a circumstance occurred which was more dangerous to the prosperity of the destitute than the whole of these discouragements, and had not grace been given me, would have been more disastrous in its consequences. Some kind friend, with more money than prudence, persuaded a considerable part of my congregation that they ought to show their love and gratitude by presenting me with a testimonial, and he would give them a good round sum as a beginning. A secret meeting was held to determine what the testimonial should be. It was agreed that it should be a full-length portrait of myself, and the amount to be expended on it about thirty guineas. They divided themselves into six companies, each company to have a book for subscriptions. By mere accident I heard of what was going on, and after one of the Thursday evening meetings I requested them to remain a few minutes, as I had something of importance to communicate. I told them I had heard of their intention to present me with a full-length oil painting of myself, surrounded with a beautifully carved gilt frame worth about thirty guineas, to be hung up in my parlour at Broadfield. Now, I said, when the picture is finished and hung up, you must all come to my house and fall down on your knees before it and say, Glory be to thee, John Ashworth. Every eye glistened, and every face beamed with delight, until I came to the last sentence. Then every head fell, and all seemed confounded, and though I paused for a considerable time, there was not a word spoken, for I believe they all saw how foolish the whole proceeding had been. I then pointed to about nine persons sitting in various parts of the room, whose hearts I thought had been really changed by divine grace, and whose lives testified to the change, saying, These are testimonials, not to me, but to the power of the Holy Ghost. Let us labor hard to increase the number of such testimonials as these, and God will bless us. But when we descend to man-worship, the glory will be taken from us. The picture was never mentioned after that night, and I was saved from this assault on my weakness and vanity. And who were those persons that sat in the various parts of the room? The answer to this question brings us to the white side of our narrative, for though I know that many of my congregation are still very ragged, wicked, and hard-hearted, yet there are others that see men like trees walking, many promising cases, and some real conversions. Amongst the promising cases, I will only mention one, an elderly man, tall, straight, with Roman nose, fiery eyes, and thin, firm, compressed lips, evidently a man of considerable force of character, though clothed in rags. He was travelling through the country, selling halfpenny toys made from scraps of fancy paper hangings. On requesting this man to come to the chapel, he immediately stood at ease, 
and informed me that I was speaking to a man who, had it not been for his own stomach, might have been an officer in the British Army. "'Then you are an old soldier, I suppose?' "'Yes, sir. I am by trade a wholesale murderer, by order of a Christian government. But if I was to do a little retail on my own account, they would tickle my neck.' and as for going to hear the twaddle of a parson, I shall do no such thing, for they dare not preach without gown, they cannot preach without book, and they will not preach without money. When I can find a man that cares nothing about trimmings and bands, preaches from God's word and not from the creeds of sects, and does it as did the first apostles from love, "'Then I will go and hear him.' "'It is not difficult to form an excuse where there is no inclination,' I replied. "'But if preaching without gown, sermon-book, or pay be to you a recommendation, "'then I am your man, though I do not pretend to be better on that account.' "'But a thousand to one you will have a collection under some pretense, "'and collections are not in my line,' he observed. "'No, we never have collections for any purpose, "'for I am anxious to remove all possible objections, "'and to take away every excuse from men of your class and character. "'Not that I object to collections, "'for I believe that where there is a heart to give a penny to the Lord's cause,' the Lord will provide a penny to give. For a moment, the old soldier looked on the ground in silence. Then, rearing himself straight up, he said, Well, I have met my match at last, and will mount guard with the awkward squad in your chapel tomorrow, so you may look out for Captain Dick. He kept his word, for during the singing of the first hymn, Captain Dick pushed his way through the crowd, came near the platform, and sat down on my left, beside old Lawrence and Pinder. He evidently thought he was conferring a favour upon me by coming. The lesson that night was the fifteenth chapter of St. Luke, and whilst the parables of the lost sheep and the prodigal son were being read, Captain Dick wept like a child. His haughty spirit was bowed down, and at the conclusion of the service he was so affected he could only press my hand, not being able to speak. For, said he, I am a poor prodigal, and it is many years since I felt the force of God's word as I did last night. The Lord have mercy on a miserable, wicked wanderer, on expressing my fears that he would not be able to get his bread by his few toys, and offering to increase his stock by purchasing for him one shilling's worth of materials, he replied, No, I can make what I have do, and it shall never be said that I only went to chapel to get something given to me. There are too many who do that. When Dick's business leads him to Rochdale, he invariably attends the destitute, and no one in the congregation seems more serious. 
He has given up snarling at parsons, as he calls them, and I have great hopes of him becoming a changed man, for he has entirely given up drinking and carries a testament in his pocket, two good signs of reformation. A woman named Sarah, one of the number referred to as testimonials, had been a tally wife. In Lancashire, a tally wife or tally husband means persons living as man and wife without being married, living in the awful sin of fornication. The subject, one Sunday evening, was in the fifth chapter of Daniel. When speaking of Belshazzar's concubines, I paused, then observed that I thought it possible some in my congregation might not know what concubines meant, and explained it by informing them they were the king's tally wives. Dwelling on the word, I said, I wonder if there be any tally wives or tally husbands here. If there are, I hope they never pray. For such persons to pray is mocking God. To be living in open adultery, living a life of scandalous infamy, shocking and disgraceful even to fallen humanity, and yet to pretend to pray, is insulting God to his face. No, no. If there are any tally-wives or tally-husbands here, I beseech you, do not pray, for there is as much hope of the devil going to heaven as you, so long as you live in adultery. Sarah went home in great distress of mind. The moment she entered the cellar on Falange Road, where she resided, she said to the tally-husband, who sat by the fire reading the newspaper, "'There is naught in this house belonging to thee but thy hat. "'Now put it on, Wilty, and just walk about to business. "'Or never have thee for a husband. "'Thou has been too naught for that, "'and I'll never go to hell for a tallyman. "'Out with thee at once.' "'I rather think thou art gone crazy, lass. "'What does ta mean?' observed the man. I mean that my flesh has fair crept o' me bones while I have been at the destitute, and I know what all's been said is true. So away with thee out of this house this minute, and God forgive us both. The man was forced to go, for the house was in Sarah's name, and the little furniture in the house belonged to her. He put on his hat, and as he was walking up the steps, declared that if he met the parson of the destitute, he would thrash him. Sarah was in great trouble for several weeks. Night and day she sought pardon. The Bible was her constant companion. She attended all the religious services she could find, and at last found mercy. She now lives a godly life and is much respected. While on this subject, I will mention two other cases. On the Monday following, the day after I had been speaking against adultery, another tally wife came in tears to ask what she must do. She said, I heard your sermon last night. I want to be saved. 
but you have shown me I cannot be in my present state. I have been living tally twenty-seven years. I have six children. The eldest is twenty-four years old, and a member of the church. All the children are good children, and are fond of their father. Why, my good woman, you must get married, I replied. How can I? For the man I am living with has a real wife in this neighbourhood, and she is living tally too. Whatever must I do? I have not slept a wink the last night. I fear we shall both be lost. My eldest daughter was at the destitute and heard what you said, and she wept all the way home. We are both willing to be wed, if we can be. What must we do? Did the wife of the man with whom you are living leave him, or did he leave her? I asked. She left him and went to another man, she replied. Then get married for the sake of yourselves and your children, and take all the consequences. We are poor, very poor, and always have been so, or we should have got a divorce long since. He fears going to prison. Whatever must we do? The woman wept all the time she was speaking, and on leaving expressed her fears of ever getting to heaven. The same day a tall man came on a similar errand. He said, I heard your sermon last night, and am come to inform you that I am living tally, and my real wife is also living tally. The woman I am living with was with me at the chapel, and we are both in great trouble, for we have a little child of which we are very fond. You must separate at once, if you hope for salvation, and one of you take the child. I know you have lived a very wicked life, and it was you that first offended. He replied, We talked the matter over last night, and we have agreed to part, for we shall both be damned if we live as we are. She says she will put the child out to nurse, and go into service, or to the mill, if I would pay two shillings weekly. But I am out of work, and cannot pay anything. You must part at once, and I will pay the money for one month. They separated, and the man regularly attends the services at the destitute. During the week, four other cases turned up, all showing the depraved condition of many of those amongst whom I was called to labour. But to resume a more pleasing subject, I mentioned a man who was blackleading his wooden leg, one of my first congregation, whose name was Boswell. He got his bread by tramping through the country, selling tape, laces, etc., and had led a very wild life. But he became so attached to the services at the destitute that he would come from Bury, Bacup, or Todmorden to be present. He was seldom absent, and became a truly changed character. The house of God was to him the house of joy and peace. I had missed him several Sundays when I received the following letter from his wife, which I give literally. Sir, Bolton, October 26, 1862. 
I take the earliest opportunity of acquainting you with my loss, but it is my dear husband's gain. He departed this life yesterday morning at nine o'clock. He had painful illness and gone under a severe operation. He had a very happy end. He blessed his Jesus and was constantly in prayer, blessing his God. You will know him. He lived at Smith's in King Street. He had a wooden leg and went with William Guest at the opening of your chapel. Guest read words of consolation to him from the Bible, which made him very happy. He blessed you. He said you taught him what he never forgot, to seek his Saviour and temperance. Will you please to forgive this liberty, and I shall feel a great consolation in a letter from you. Yours truly, Mary Boswell, in care of William Fish, 149K, Little Bolton. I felt a degree of sorrow on hearing of Boswell's death, and the letter from his wife forcibly reminded me of walking by his side through the streets amidst the jeers of the spectators. He was the first man that entered with me into the chapel, one of the sixteen called the Awkward Squad, and Bill Guest, the man that was dividing his hair, looking into the piece of broken looking-glass, Guest, the man that all declared was the worst in the lot. He was the person mentioned in the letter as praying with and reading words of consolation from the Bible to the dying Christian, who found a saviour at the destitute. Farewell, my dear friend. Thou art gone to where there are neither rags nor sins, to that happy place where missing limbs are never known for there are no wooden legs in heaven. I have mentioned a short, stout man that was well known as a terrible drunkard and swearer. He would fight any man of his weight. He was truly ignorant, could not read, and earned his living by driving a donkey. How this man got amongst us I do not know, but after coming several times he brought a tall man, one of his companions, in sin. In all weathers, and at all the services, the long and short men regularly attended, to the astonishment of all that knew them. The first intimation of a change in the short man was his telling me he was learning to read, and he wanted me to get him a Bible with large print. Why, cloth, are you thinking of learning to read the Bible at sixty years of age, I observed? "'That I am, and by God's help I will, "'for it will never do for me to live as I have done.' "'Do you ever pray, Clough?' I asked. "'Do I? Eh? Many a time a day. "'I never go into donkey coat to yoke it up, "'or give it aught to eat, but I go down on me knees. "'And many a time and a day besides. "'I hope God will have mercy on me.' and I think he will. That tall man that comes with me is in a weary way too. He's cried many hour about his wicked life, and he may will, for he's been a sweater. We're neither on us reach, nor but when we come to chapel. Cloth, 
got a Bible with large print, and soon learned to read it. For three years he has lived a life of faith in the Son of God. He says his donkey feels the benefit of his becoming religious, for he does not beat it now, and it goes better without thumping, as he calls it. I called to see him on Friday last, and found his wife very poorly. He seemed much distressed about her spiritual condition. He spoke tenderly to her, entreating that she would not despair of mercy, declaring that if all the world was his own, he would give it to hear her say that her sins were pardoned. The tall man that Cloth mentioned as crying about his sinful life resided at a place called Spotland Bridge. In addition to drinking, swearing, and Sabbath-breaking, he had been a scoffer and mocker of the Bible, sneering at and scorning everyone professing religion. On speaking to him after the service, one Thursday evening, he seemed greatly distressed, and informed me that thinking on the wickedness of his past life often made him break out in sweating and weeping. I lent him several books, and frequently spoke words of encouragement to him. He sought forgiveness in sighs and groans, obtained mercy, and became one of the happiest men I ever met with. Wolfenden, for that was his name, was an astonishing testimony of the power of saving grace. For near four years he walked humbly with his God in newness of life, and then God took him. I said a few words by way of a funeral sermon, for he was a man well known. His widow and a large family of grown-up children were present. After the sermon, they all gathered round me, weeping. The oldest daughter, taking hold of my hand, said, "'Jesus Christ never saved a worse man than my father was. No one knew him as his family did, and you little know what we have had to suffer through him. But for the last three years he has been one of the best of men.' and with his last breath he blessed God for this place of worship. After Wolfenden's conversion, he became anxious about his old companions in sin. By his persuasion, a tall elderly man named Grindrod, who had not been in a place of worship for twenty years, began to attend the destitute. On his return from the service the first night, he astonished his wife by asking if there was not a Bible somewhere in the house. The power of the gospel on this man was amazing. He became humble as a child, and greedily drank of the word, which soon became to him a word of peace and joy. The old man with large spectacles named Solomon one of the sixteen that attended the first service, obtained the like precious faith. He travelled through the country, selling his tape, pins, and needles, telling everywhere what the Lord had done for him for three years. Then he died, blessing God for his mercies to him in his old age, and his grey-headed old widow is still with us in all our services.' 
At the conclusion of one of our weeknight services, a poor man, in the simplicity of his heart, offered up the following prayer, which well deserves the effect the gospel had on many that were present. O Lord, I thank Thee on my bended knees for what Thou hast done for a lot of the worst men and women in Rochdale. Who could have thought of seeing us on our knees praying? We cannot laugh one at another, for we have all been bad enough, and we are all poor as Lazarus. But if we are poor in pocket, we are getting rich in faith, and that's better than all the brass in the world. I saw some rich folks in the market buying fat geese, and legs of mutton, but I had to be content with a penny red herring. I thought, there's a difference, but I do not envy them, for I dare say they have their troubles of some sort. Brass does not give as much comfort as religion. Jesus Christ sent the disciples to tell John that the poor had the gospel preached to them and the gospel gives more comfort than brass, fat geese, and legs of mutton. I know one thing. It has made a vast difference in our house. My wife had always a sad tongue, which I know to my sorrow. But there is a mighty change for the better. Everybody is astonished how she is mended. We now kneel down together every day, but six months since we should as soon thought of flying as praying. If this chapel does no more good nor mending my wife, it will have done a great deal. She knows what I am saying is true, for she is knelt here beside me, and the religion of Jesus Christ can mend anybody except the devil, for I guess he cannot be mended. If he could, it would mend him for it has mended lots here almost as bad as him. The Lord help us to stand fast, for if he does not, we shall tumble. Amen. While Matthew was praying, I felt my cheeks burning, and was anxious he would conclude much sooner than he did, for I feared that his wife would again make use of her sad tongue on their way home. Yet, singular as it may seem, none appeared surprised, for if the poor, simple, ignorant people will pray, they must use their own language. I strongly object to studied vulgarity in prayer, but where it is sincere, it is more excusable. Matthew is still with us, and may be seen every Sabbath, patiently assisting a feeble old man to and from our place of worship. My visits to the homes of the wretched and miserably poor, week after week, and talking with them, and giving away my handbills, soon brought around me a large congregation. We removed out of the first meeting room into the lecture hall in Bailey Street. The work increased so rapidly that I engaged a male and a female scripture reader, giving them strict orders to pay special attention to the poor outcasts of the town and neighborhood. The results are 
that the lecture hall is densely crowded every Sunday with a serious, steady congregation of about four hundred. The average attendance of the Thursday evening service is about three hundred. At the Tuesday evening meeting, for inquirers only, about forty, besides two cottage meetings. Almost every individual attending these various religious services are the really poor, not before attending any place of worship. Yet during the whole of the four years, I have but once been disturbed by the misconduct of persons attending. The following circumstance may give some idea of the appearance and character of my new friends when we first commenced. A poor woman, who had received much good at the services, with great difficulty persuaded her drunken, idle, ragged, dirty husband to attend one night. After it was over, and before he had properly got out of the room, he began swearing at his wife for bringing him to such a place, declaring that all the scamps in the country were collected together and it was a disgrace for anyone to be seen amongst them. He forgot that he was one of the worst and most miserable-looking of the lot, but he came again and again, and has given up swearing. There is now a great change for the better in the general appearance of my new friends. They are cleaner and better dressed, a seriousness has come over the whole people, and many, I believe, are truly converted to God. I believe that there is nothing calculated so surely and rapidly to reform the worst characters as the plain, simple gospel of Christ. One thus saith the Lord is worth all the thus saith the schools and the doctors of divinity in the world. God will bless his own word. I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto me, will forever be found the truth. I prayed at the beginning of my work that the Lord would send me funds as they might be required. He has answered that prayer, for without asking any person for one farthing, I have received as follows from various parts of the country, First year, 1859, 15 pounds 6 shillings. Second year, 26 pounds 9 shillings 8 pence. Third year, 109 pounds 7 shillings 10 pence halfpenny. Fourth year, 106 pounds 9 shillings 11 pence halfpenny. The present year already, near two hundred pounds. All the offices I held in the church before commencing my labours amongst the poor I still hold, for I have found by experience that the more work a man does in the cause of God, the more he wishes to do, and the less he does, the less he feels disposed to do. And I am thankful to say that I have not suffered in my business connections. By dividing my time, I am able to attend to my business in business hours.
to God and God only be all the praise for his wonderful mercy and goodness, both to me and my new friends.